Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And we are back this week with Mr. Jan Barry again. So uh, we will have more very interesting insights uh, that we uh, we were we talk about, but we never get directly from the source. So I'm I'm kind of excited about these episodes because we're actually speaking with the man who wrote the story and who actually experienced it. So um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Chuck Stead. We're going to hear another chapter of Get the Let Out. Yep. And thank you, Joe. We're talking uh, again about the outcome of the film Man v. Ford, which also expresses to us the story of the outcome of the case Man v. Ford, which we're going to talk about in this episode. Now, the film documents that in 2006, the Cochrane Law Firm, along with the Kennedy Firm, the Madonna Firm, and three other local firms, that they all filed suit charging Ford with negligent toxic poisoning of the community. By September of that year, the EPA relists Ringwood as an active Superfund site, making it the first ever Superfund site to be relisted in the country. After much legwork, the legal team focused on dioxin. That's a deadly chemical that was produced when the waste caught fire and burned for weeks in the early 70s. Vivian Milligan's home movies actually document the fires that could be seen from Manhattan. Dr. James Dahlgren, the team's medical expert, believed that arsenic and dioxin exposure came from particulate matter that settled on the community from the fires. It was in the ash. Back in Manhattan at an upscale Essex House restaurant, the team is debriefed by Dahlgren while waiters refill their water tumblers. He tells them that the dioxin exposure would have been, and in all likelihood, he says, still is exceptionally high. He tells them that in all his interviews, he found on average only 5% of the Ramapos were over 65 years of age, while a comparable average for other contaminated communities was 15 to 20 percent over 60 years of age. And he found diabetes to be four or five times higher than the state and national averages. Then in 2008, the EPA announces that Ford has just completed yet another cleanup and all the dangerous toxins have been removed. Now we follow in the film Spiegel, that's the fellow from Edison Wetlands, along with Richard Chapin and a few Ramapos up to the latest site of recovery, the cleanup area, only to see them gather more chunks of paint sludge in plain view. Within minutes, they collect 25 pounds of the stuff. Eventually, the film brings us to court for a case management hearing. It is September 29, 2008. Lawyers for both sides sit and listen to Judge Jonathan Harris. He announces that they will have to work with all 647 plaintiffs, grouping them into six groups of 108 each, which will lead to a series of phases for the cases to follow into a series of court appearances, essentially a case management that was impossible. Interestingly, on the same day, the 29th of September, Ford announced its stock had gone into a freefall and it was facing major financial losses. Kevin Madonna, the lawyer for the plaintiff, advised the Ramapos at that time that Ford's wavering financial situation made the outcome of a trial look questionable. Ultimately, the case was settled out of court with a financial compensation that amounted to as much as $4,000 to $35,000 awarded per plaintiff. 
Barbara Williams observed that that came to about 8,000 for most of the individuals. Vivian Milligan observed that Ford got away with it. Jan Barry noted that across the country in similar cases, there was a pattern of intimidation being pushed by the judiciary to come to a settlement. Wayne Mann from the community believed that no matter what happened, it would never, as he says, be admitted that a minority community could beat Ford. At the closing of the film, text on the screen announced that a year after the case went into settlement, Ford posted profits of $2.7 billion. And then by 2010, they posted profits of $6.6 billion. It's a long movie, 106 minutes. I found myself exhausted as the credits scrolled up on the screen. My intern, Sonia, she stretched her legs and said something about how sad the whole thing was. The house lights in the sharp theater at the college went up, and a couple of the film producers came out for a chat with the audience. Maro Chemerov was one of them. There was an uncomfortable feeling, that of sadness and frustration. A few Ramapos spoke up, but it wasn't until Cindy Fountain stood that anyone acknowledged their own part in this film. She turned and thanked the Ringwood Turtle Clan for their courageous contribution to this production. I turned in my seat, we were down front, and I noticed that the auditorium was partially emptied by now. Then Vivian Milligan, she stood, and with tremendous elegance, she first thanked the filmmakers and then asked them, what's next? The three on stage looked confused by this. Milligan explained that she hoped they weren't going to leave the Turtle Clan behind now that the film was complete. Maro Chermroff, she responded by saying, well, now it's up to you. Now you have a voice. We have given you a voice. <sighs> Apparently, Ms. Chemerov, after spending the latter part of five years' worth of visits to the community, hadn't noticed that the community was not exactly voiceless to begin with. I was reminded of Gilliam's observation that Wayne Mann was a voice for the voiceless. But there are many voices here. Before the upscale lawyers and filmmakers came upon them, there are many voices, advocates like Spiegel, journalists like Barry and, and Williams, and Ramapos themselves, for over 30 years calling upon regulatory agencies, borough hall members, and educators to hear their story. And perhaps it is in Chermarov's relatively condescending remark that we find the film's failure an indication of the larger failure that permeates much of the best of intentions. As will be discussed in further episodes, this tendency of a dominant party to possess the narrative of those lesser parties who are dominated runs deep. It is the internal structure of a system of power. Ben McGrath did not initiate his research with the carpetbagger's agenda, but the final result for the Turtle Clan, once his work was channeled through the handlers at the New Yorker headquarters, was that of an interloper. Lead attorney Vicki Gilliam, so moved by the story, clearly sought justice but was powerless to the machinery of injustice. And the film's makers themselves, they believed their work was done once they gave the Ramapos a voice. A noble gift indeed. As we started to mill about, I caught the attention of a man that uh, was with Ms. Chermaroff, and I told him that currently on the New York side of the border, we were working with Ford toward a more cooperative resolution. He dismissed me. 
with a remark about, oh, getting on to other things. I can't do this anymore, and quickly ran away. Outside the Barry Center, Sonia and I took in the deep night air of the post-cloudburst, and we walked to our, our cars, and we came across Chief Perry. I asked what he thought about the film. He shrugged, and he said, Same old colonial crap. Well, you can't disagree with him, can you? No. Oh, man. That had to be really disappointing. My, my brother, Tommy, saw the film recently and came away with some of the same feelings. Thought that it started strong, but he said, I just didn't understand where it went or what happened. And I said, well, it didn't really, there's no, uh, unless you've got a cast of people, a group of people who are going to really follow this thing and fight forever, it tends to dissipate. I guess that's the nature of, of all conflict. What is still being done today, or is there anything substantive? Well, very little. The Turtle Clan is still pushing to have the cleanup done. There are also members of the Turtle Clan, along with Chief Mann at the Three Sisters Farm, who are pushing for a relocation project, which is a whole other thing we'll talk about in a later episode. But uh, ultimately, the state has turned its back. The federal government certainly turned its back. And, you know, I guess it would take getting some big names, some celebrities or somebody. But as you'll see in the next episode, when we had a shot at that, that falls apart too. Uh, uh, we're, we're dealing with, with something here, Joe, that's unfortunately, it's, it's, it's very big. It's a Goliath. For example, Jan, the, the Bergen Record had that wonderful uh, website, that wonderful site that had all of the articles and all of the interviews and all of the footage of, of the entire project from the Toxic Legacy and it was available on the website, and I, along with a number of college professors at Ramapo and many of them at Rutgers, were using that in our curriculum. And then the Bergen Record no longer is the Bergen Record. It becomes owned by another chain. And the site was shut down. Unannounced, boom, it was shut down. And I don't know if you know this, Jan. Uh, Jeff tells me that um, somebody copied a lot of the site and it is available again, not the videos, not the uh, films, but the articles and, and some of the photographs are available under the same title. Have you heard that? Well, there's a site called Wayback Machine mm -hmm. which tries to capture all kinds of things that are online. That's what I've seen it references to. But it doesn't have what was unique to that uh, initial website which were video interviews yeah which were pieces of reporting in and of themselves they were great they showed jeff standing in the middle of the tornbrook stream discovering he's standing on paint sludge uh -huh. you see this for the first time local environmentalist discovers he's something he didn't even know i'm standing on this stuff did you hear in that video who pointed it out to him no me oh, okay <laughs> what are you standing at <laughs> uh, so the sludge remains and the activity to fight it has kind of dissipated at this point. Uh, on the part of the external forces, the internal forces in the, in the clan, they're still very much a part of it. But let's remember they're also they're debilitated. They're all sick. They're all struggling with the illnesses that they're experiencing all the time. Yeah. So there's a, a limit to what they can do. Let me ask you something about the sludge itself. You mentioned this in an earlier episode, but you said that you saw it 
in the in the yard. Uh-huh. To, to, how does it manifest? Does it was there was that built on top of it no. after the fact, or does it literally rise to the surface? No, or? what we piece together is many of the houses there now were built after this dumping took place. This is the how-to project. Those right. houses, which and we didn't Ford even tell you about, gave yeah. the land. We found documents where they talk about how they're trying to get rid of this property. Oh, uh, and they, some, they give it to this local housing group. And then the engineer for Edison Wetlands pieced together. He says, oh, of course, they bulldozed you know, to make flat things. And it turned the Kicked paint sludge up. into smaller and smaller yep. pieces. Yep. Integrated into the soil of this whole area here is like this. You know, to level it out to put a house... Okay, well, now it's in the soil, and it heaved with the winter heaving right up through the grass. Ford, wow. got a, Ford got a nice tax write-off by donating contaminated soil that they contaminated to this project, to the how-to project for building houses for low-income folks. <laughs> they also donated a big section to Ringwood State Park. And in one of the documents that we uncovered, they hoped that the state wouldn't look too closely at this gift. Well, I was also trying to trace process at which, at a certain point in time, Ford is unloading this property. So where's the deed transfer? So I go to the Passaic County Courthouse and looking through deed books. And I go to the next year, nothing. I go, to the, I go through five years and I'm finding nothing. And somebody there who does this professionally says, just keep looking. It wasn't recorded for six years. Is that so? That they had transferred this property. To keep it quiet, to keep yeah, it from, from right. public eye. Yeah. So sometime in the late 70s, somebody yeah. at the DEP who's new says they wanted an inventory. That started a process at the DEP in which uh, I guess somebody then realized they had to come up with filing a deed. <laughs> Because the deed didn't exist, apparently. <laughs> yeah, there was no deed. So somebody had to now file a deed. And the other bizarre thing was the signatures on the deed were by a governor who hadn't taken office yet. Oh, this is ridiculous. Yeah. DEP yeah. commissioner who hadn't taken office yet, who had now become the head of the su- state Supreme Court and couldn't remember when one of our r- reporters interviewed him. Couldn't remember that period of time. It was all back signed because the deed gets discovered in 79 about an event that happened yeah. in, I think, 72. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it didn't because they didn't have those offices right. at that time. Yeah. I'm thinking this is Brendan Byrne, maybe? Or? Yep. It was Brendan yeah. Byrne. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. Who either he himself or somebody on his behalf said he'd, he wouldn't have done such a thing. He may very well not have done such a thing. This yeah. is a forged document. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Boy, oh, boy. So they were just basically offloading poisoned land. And yeah. Even though we reported yeah. that, it was a small portion of this much larger piece of reporting. Nothing ever came of investigating a false document. It just gets curiouser and curiouser, oh, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Man, oh, man. And your earlier question about how it, how it emerges, wherever they buried paint... One of the things that we learned in our field studies over in Torn Valley is natural erosion will eventually expose it in one place or another. So you'll find 
the tailings of something, and then you start to explore and you start to dig, and then you eventually find it's more than crumbled pieces, it's actually a continuous flow, and you start to identify it, identify it that way. But the other problem is, like what Jan was saying, is that the material, if it breaks down in the soil, you're faced with, with two problems. One, it's lead, and, and lead will phytoremediate into fibrous plant material and into the root work and into the stalks, and then the animals eat it. So it starts to biomagnify through the chain of one thing eating another. But the other problem is, and I mentioned this in an earlier episode, Ford said the toxins, like the solvents and the coloring agents and, and these sort of things, and the plasticizer, all of that burns off. No, the plasticizer contained it. And so even acetone, which if you open a jar of uh, nail polish remover and leave it open overnight, in the morning it's empty. Well, it's not really empty. It's in the air and you're breathing it. That's, that's what happened to it. So it's still here in a different form. Well, the, ac the acetone that was in the paint, and there was thousands of gallons of acetone in the paint, yeah. this acetone was contained because this DEHP held onto it. The plasticizer, which was so good for car painting, held onto it. And then in the soil, if it breaks down in the soil, it gets into the groundwater. So even then, it doesn't have a chance to volatize. Then it merely transfers, this would include the DEHP as well, into the moisture of the groundwater, and it can start to migrate further along. As a side note, DEHP was developed by DuPont. So <laughs> let's remember the investments here and think about who has the authority to go after a story, to squash a story, to destroy a story. And as one more side note, at that time when I was doing some of this work, I was working for Cornell Cooperative Extension and I went up to uh, Ithaca and I brought samples because they have a mass spectrometer at the University of Cornell. I told them what I wanted. They told me, this is how you create the samples. This is how you put everything together. Beautiful lab, great chem lab, great analysis lab, and they have this, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. And I just wanted a full chemical breakdown on the paint sludge. So I took samples from different areas, and I did all the preparation work on the samples according to their protocol. I brought up there. Week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, three months later, I went back because every time I called, they'd say, well, it's in process. But three months, come on. Mm. So I go back up there, and I... I get into the lab and I'm talking to one of the people who works in the lab, one of the lab ops. And then he takes me aside and he said, Chuck, look around this lab, state of the art. And I said, yeah, that, <laughs> that's why I sent it to you. And he said, who built this lab? I said, oh, you did. And he said, DuPont. He said, in your report, you acknowledged that your plasticizer came from DuPont. Chuck, we're really going to, we're going to analyze that stuff for you. Who are you? I said, what'd you do with it? And they said, well, it was contaminated. So we threw it away. Boom. Just like that. Yep. Wow. So, so that's part of the, the David yeah. Goliath scenario that you're in, Jan, that yeah. I'm in, that any of us are in, yeah. that the Ramapos are in. You know, I, I learned recently from my father-in-law who worked for GE for uh, his whole work life up in Hudson Falls, I think. Uh, he, um, they had a very serious PCB problem because PCB doesn't burn, and that's what they would basically bathe their capacitors in. And uh, he said, we, we had women in the factory that, that would put their hands in vats, in vats of PCB. 
and, and, and literally create closures and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, we started to realize that, the, you know, something it was wrong here, that, that there were people getting sick or whatever. And he said, so GE really stepped up, but I'm, I'm wondering whether they really stepped up or whether they covered up because he said, yeah, they, they, um, they bought all the land, you know, that was affected, you know, by it. And then they, uh, you know, they just, they created parks with it and they did this and they did that. But of course, all this stuff is still in the land. Yeah. So what they're doing when they buy the land is they're buying the problem. The, the thing that blows my mind about all of this is how much would this have cost cost Ford to do it the right way, to properly dispose of this of this paint? Or, or is that even possible? You know, would it have cost them less than all of the stuff that happened after? Yes, there definitely would have cost them less. But let's keep in mind the time frame that this came out of, 60s and 70s. At the time, it was all about throw it away. Get rid of it. A Don't shrug think of the shoulders. A shrug of the shoulders. Yes, it would have cost them less, but the darker reality is if we make these substances and don't allow for the cost of containing them when they are waste, then we're lying to ourselves about what is the real cost of these things. And that's that's the hard hump to get over. That's why industry likes to offshore, because they're going to places where they don't have to deal with regulatory concerns. Because the big story right now is that all of our chemical weapons, you know, they were supposed to have destroyed the last chemical weapon. Mm-hmm. It's a, there's a huge facility where they do this. But they, they admit that, you know, the, the actual last weapon was decapacitated back in 2019. But he said, oh, it, it'll take at least another, you know, six to ten years for us to actually dispose of all the materials. And you wonder right away now, where, <laughs> where are they disposing of those materials? What are they doing? Well, Jan, you know, the, the, the paint went to four different locations when they, or maybe you don't know, this is from the Torn Valley project that I was on. Mm-hmm. And one of them is actually a, an industrial incinerator designed specifically to burn down compounds like these and melt the lead out, mm-hmm. which gets formed into casks and then gets put into like shafts in the side of a mountain. So if there's ever a need for lead again, they don't have to mine it. They can just roll out one of these casks, which has got this pure lead in it. Think of that cost. But then there are all of the other toxins that are in there. These incinerators have various biofilters staged up through the stacks. And each biofilter is designed for a particular toxin. And the biofilters themselves, when they get changed out, also become entombed in the side of a mountain. And where they planned to put the bulk of this was the, the same place they were planning to put uh, the, the plutonium waste at Yucca Mountain. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what's Yucca Mountain? It's an indigenous sacred site. So, so there we go again. where do you go? Yep. Yeah. I'll tell you, we took the kids in a little van, um, our three kids, across the country back in 2001. And any time you got to a Native American reservation. It was the worst, hardest, most difficult land to live on, you know, where we basically contained Mm -hmm. these people who, when we stole their land from them. Uh, But it it just, uh, boy, it never changes, does it? But they survived. 
Yeah. They, they had fortitude. I mean, Despite they were supposed it. to die on this crappy land. And then they figure out a way to survive because they're people of the land. And, you know, <laughs> and, and then if uranium is dis- discovered on their land, then they get contaminated because then we claim eminent domain to access the uranium and we go, I mean, it's the same story over. They survive, but it, but in fairly great poverty. Oh, yeah. You know, like yeah. really just, you know, it ain't right. Oh. It's not right. Well, shall anyway. we? Uh, let's let's again try to end on an up note. Yeah, please do, please do. <laughs> Jan, you. it's your turn. What's the up note? I wish there was an up note some days, but persistence is, you know, the key to all of I'm this. I'm looking at an up note. I'm looking at you. You're persistent. Yeah. yeah. Um, as an example, with my health problems. I went to the VA last year and I saw somebody with a wheelie. I said, can I get one of those? Sure. And they gave me this monster wheelie with great big, huge wheels. Not the little one that I was used to that my mother had. I can go off road. I can go on trails. Wow. Wow. All right. That's an upside. That's, that's something to be great. We're figuring out ways to survive. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. Well, thank you so much, and uh, that wraps up another one. We'll see you next week. What are we going to talk about next week, Chuck? Next week, we're going to finish out the chapter that I've called A Story is Told by Others, and we're going to look at a couple of other films briefly about how the Ramapos are interpreted by the, the white world. All right. And with that, thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you next week. for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845 764 1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter. 
and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.